Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1. Let's read or listen as I read, but read quietly along with me, please. Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. Now on the Levites' platform stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaneah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, Kunani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And then the Levites, Joshua, Kamiel, Bani, Hazabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Sheraniah, and Pethahiah said, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. O may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens and all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the sea and all that is in them. You give life to all of them and the host of heaven or the heavenly host, excuse me, bows down before you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanites, of the Hittite and the Amorite and of the Perizzite and the Jebusites and the Gerashite to give it to his descendants. And you have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them and made a name for yourself as it is to this day. Let us pray. Father God, thank you that we can join together this morning in worship of you. And Lord, we do lift up those that are sick this morning and those for various reasons that tried to attend and could not. I pray that you would be with them. Many of them watching from home and I pray your blessings on each of those. But God, now as we look into your word, God, may your spirit work in our hearts and cause us to worship you, to understand that it's all about you and about your glory. And may you be blessed this very day from our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. You may be seated. As you've noticed this morning already, and throughout 
the word of God. It's filled with many stories, and we sometimes look at them as stories. Those stories include like people like Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, David, New Testament apostles, and many, many others. But can I suggest that the purpose of all those stories, all those things recorded in the Word of God, is not so much that we would know about those individuals, but that we would know God, that we would know Him. Just as the heavens declare the glory of God, God's revelation declares His glory. History is God at work. History reveals God's glory, His greatness, His power, His majesty. God has acted in time and eternity to make a name for Himself, as we read in verse 10. The story of David and Goliath is often portrayed with David being the hero. Goliath being the enemy. But David is not the hero in that story. The point of the story is God's protection of his people and how God chose to use a shepherd boy for his own purposes. An application is often made making us David and all our struggles in life our Goliath. But you're not David. I'm not David. And our struggles are not our Goliaths. God revealed this event in history to reveal himself. You see, God is so amazing that he can use a young shepherd boy for his own glory. He can protect his own people from the most fierce enemy. You see, it's about God. And we dare not miss it. We must always understand that God has acted in history to reveal his own glory. Even man's salvation is to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1 tells us that he predestined us to be adopted, to be sun-placed. And verse 6 says it's to the praise of the glory of his grace. You see, it's all about him. The ultimate purpose of all of history, including the redemption of man, is for God to make a name for himself, to reveal himself as he really is. To reveal his true reputation, his character, his essence, his greatness, his goodness. That we might praise his name above all names. Folks, there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what it's about. We must remember that all creation and all God's creatures and all God's acts in time and eternity are for His own glory and for His alone. Dare we ever seek glory for ourselves. When we twist the gospel to make it about us, we're attempting to rob, rob God of his glory. God said in Isaiah 42, 
my glory I will not give to another. God is glorious and he's worthy to be praised. And he's the only one that deserves glory. When he does something in our lives, it's for his glory and not our own. It's not about us. It's about the one that is truly glorious. And this sets the stage for us this morning in chapter 9. And by way of review, the children of Judah had completed the walls in just 52 days. It was God's doing. Even their enemies recognized that it was God. On the first day of the seventh month, Tishrei, they celebrated the Feast of Trumpets. On the 15th day of Tishrei, they began celebrating the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It lasted seven days. Then on the eighth day was again the Sabbath. That was the 22nd day of the month. Today we pick up on Monday the 24th, what we would know of as Monday, the 24th day of Tishrei, chapter 9, verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. On the Feast of Trumpets, back on Tishrei number one, day number one, the Jews mourned because of their sin. But you might remember, Ezra turned their attention to the celebration of the Feast of Trumpets. Now on the 24th day, they turned their attention back to their sin. They fast. They put sackcloth on. Put dirt or ashes on themselves. What does this mean? Well, very simply, sackcloth and ashes were used as an outward sign of one's inward condition. Such a symbol made one's change of heart visible and demonstrated the sincerity of one's grief and or repentance. In Nehemiah 9, the Jewish people were outly expressing their sorrow over their sins and the sins of their fathers. They were sorry for their sins. They were grieved for their sins. And as we'll see, they were repentant for their sins. Verse 2, the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Notice they separated from the foreigners. God's chosen people in the old covenant was almost exclusively made up of those of the children of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his 12 sons. There's only a few exceptions. One of the blessings of the new covenant is that forgiveness has come to both Jew and Gentile alike. This is one of the mysteries of the new covenant, that God would put believing Jew and Gentile into one body breaking down, as Paul said, the middle wall of separation. Here in Nehemiah chapter 9, the Jews separated from the foreigners for this time of worship. The new covenant implication is that believers are to remain separate from unbelievers. And that applies to worship. You see, the worship of God and all that it entails is always exclusively for believers, believers only. The unbeliever is separated from God and cannot worship him. 
Yet many churches today have adopted pragmatic means to build their congregations. Designing church services for seekers rather than for saints. Yet the Bible tells me no man seeks for God in Romans 3. Censor, excuse me, seeker-sensitive churches are motivated by a misunderstanding of the church, of ecclesia, a misunderstanding of worship, a misunderstanding of evangelism, and a disregard for God's sovereignty in salvation. This philosophy also results in a failure to worship God as prescribed by God himself. It results in believers being neglected rather than discipled. Churches being compromised rather than being made pure. Sadly, many evangelical churches are no longer set apart. But it becomes just like the world, using fleshly methods. We are the ecclesia, the called out ones. Called out of the world unto holiness called out of the world to worship God's holy name. In verse 2, the children of Israel separated themselves from foreigners. They stood and confessed their sins and the sins of their fathers. And then we come to verse 3. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. So they read from the law for the first fourth of the day. I'm assuming that would be like from about six to nine o'clock. See, the word of God took a prominent place in their lives and in their Jewish worship. Because the word of God is the revelation of God himself. It reveals who God is. But it also reveals our sin and our inability to please God. After the reading the word, the children of Israel confessed their sins and worshipped the second one quarter of the day. You see, God's word, when received properly, leads to confession of sins. It leads to the worship of the redeeming God. That's why it's so important that we discipline ourselves to spend time in God's word. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God has spoken. God's word is God's breath, so to speak. We come to verses 4 and 5. And you look at that on the screen. You see two groups. It's partially overlapping. Levites, Levites that cried out to God. Well, the Old Testament priests came from the tribe of Levi. The designation Levites was usually a reference to those who served at the tabernacle or later the temple. And that's the case in this passage. We saw it in Ezra this morning. It mentioned priests and Levites. Although they came from the same tribe, there's two different distinctions there. Notice in verse 5b what the Levites said. Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. 
Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. The people were to stand and bless the Lord forever and ever. What does it mean to bless the Lord? Well, basically, we don't have the time to get into that so deeply this morning, but basically it means to speak well of his goodness and greatness. And it means to do so from the depths of our hearts, to really mean it with all our hearts. It's to praise, to exalt him, to proclaim his excellent greatness and goodness. In other words, to exalt or praise him for who he really is. That's what it means to bless the Lord. You see, the more that we know him and we know him through the word, the more that we know him, the more we will bless his holy name. And again, we know him through his word. We know him through his acts. We know him through history. The word history and I don't know if this is its origin. Should have looked it up. But if you break it down, his story. Folks, I'm going to tell you, real history is God's story. And it reveals him. It's all about him. But then we also know him through our own salvation. And as we've seen him act in our lives. In one sense, when we're born again, God unites me with that red thread of history, that redemptive history. That's what happens when he saves me. So in Nehemiah, the Levites began to recount the history of God, God's chosen people. After admonishing the Jews to bless the Lord, they began to recount the history of Israel. Because the history of Israel is the revelation of, of God. In verse 6, they first declare who God is. You alone are the Lord. When you see Lord in all caps, it's Yahweh. You alone are Yahweh. Never, this name actually originates, goes back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, and he says, I am who I am. That's who you to say that sent you. The I am who I am. He didn't say I was. He didn't say I will be. He is the I am, the eternal self-existing God. He alone is Yahweh. He is saying, I am the eternal God. I have no competitors. I depend on no one or no thing. I had no beginning and I will have no end. I am absolutely God. You must answer to me and me alone. He's sovereign God. He's Yahweh. The eternal self-existing one. There is no other God than he. Then in the remainder of verse 6, you see on the screen, as they began to recount Israel's history, they proclaim Yahweh as creator of the heavens and all their hosts, the earth and all that is in them, the sea, seas and all that is in them. He is the giver of life, the sustainer of life, and the heavenly host worships him. And then in verse 7, he says, you 
alone are the Lord God. Yahweh Elohim. The eternal self-existing God. Elohim ruler or divine one. God. Who chose Abram out of your earth. Gave him the name Abraham. God chose him. He lived, and I've said this before, he lived almost, as it were, on the other side of the tracks. He didn't come from, his father was a pagan. And God chose him out of that family and out of that nation to serve him. It was a work of God, what God did. And he changed his name from Abram, exalted father, the father of a multitude, Abraham. Proclaiming that God would do a work in this man. That God would give him children. And we go into, we see this in Genesis chapter 12. And God calls Abraham out of his country and out of his father's house. And he promises to give him a great land. To bless him and to make his name great. To make him a great nation. He promises divine protection for him and his descendants. I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who curse you. And then he promises to bless the whole world through him. God's promising that people would be redeemed through one of his descendants from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. What an amazing promise. God takes a man out of a wicked family and for God's own glory, he raises him up and uses him for his own glory. But he didn't just call out one man. He's calling out a nation, a nation through whom his word would be proclaimed. His word, his, these prophets of Israel would proclaim God's truth and through whom the Messiah would come. You know, the children of Israel were often referred to in the scriptures as those called by my name, God says. That's who Israel was. Then in verse 8, the Levites proclaimed Yahweh as righteous. You found his heart faithful before you. You made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanites of the Hittite, of the Amorite, of the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Gershite, sorry, to give it to his descendants, and you have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. He says, you have fulfilled your promise, speaking of God, because God is faithful. He's always faithful. He always keeps his promises. He is a covenant-keeping God. Paul said he will never deny himself. Notice in this text, we see something that's very significant. God's faithful is inseparable from his righteousness. The last two phrases of verse 8, and you have fulfilled your promise for you are righteous. 
It's because God is perfectly righteous that he's faithful. They're inseparable. His faithfulness stems from his righteous character, from his righteous essence. Yahweh is the perfect standard of righteousness. He's the very definition of what it means to be righteous. He doesn't need an external standard like the law. The law was based on his righteousness. He is the standard. His essence is righteousness. Notice as we continue, the Levites continued rehearsing the history of God's revelation of himself. In verses 9 and 10, look at verse 9. God did not forget about the children of Israel in Egypt because he saw their affliction. While we, as God's elect, may suffer in this life, you can be sure God sees our affliction. He's not always promised to remove pain and suffering or persecution. But he sees it. He knows it. He's aware. And he can remove it. You see, he's not some deistic God that created and then leaves us to ourselves. He's a personal God that loves his children. In verse 10, he performed signs against Pharaoh, his servants, and the Egyptians. He brought 10 plagues against Egypt. Why? You made a name for yourself as it is to this day. That's why. That's exactly the purpose of God acting for Israel in the Exodus. Exodus 9 verse 14. Listen to this. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that they, excuse me, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Each of the plagues demonstrated that Yahweh was truly God. He was the creator. He is the creator. The plagues were against Egyptian false gods. In particular, the first nine plagues. Against the false gods of Egypt. You see, these gods were fake gods. They were false. They were nothing. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that's truly God. That's Yahweh. There is no other Deuteronomy 4.35, when the story of Exodus is being recounted, notice what it says. To you, it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God, and there is no one besides him. No one. He's God. Deal with him. He's God. He's Yahweh. God's purpose in the Exodus his purpose throughout history, his purpose in the salvation of man is to make a name for himself that he would reveal who he really is and do so for his own glory. All his works are to pro proclaim his glory. A Psalm of Aesop, 79.9. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name and deliver us and forgive our sins. For your own namesake. 
Psalm 106, 7 and 8a. The psalmist said, Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindnesses, but rebelled by the sea and at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name. You see, it's for his glory that he acts. Psalm 115.1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. We don't deserve the glory. You do, God, in all of it. Isaiah 48, Isaiah deals with the sins of Judah, revealing God's purpose. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? Ezekiel 36, God promises the blessings of the new covenant and says in verse 26 and 27a, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of a heart of flesh, excuse me, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues. But before God promises the blessings of the new covenant in verses 26 and 27, he said this back in verse 22 and 23. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declared the Lord God. When I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Do you see it? God has acted throughout history for his own namesake. We take the gospel and we make it all about us. And praise God, he's redeemed us. He has set us free from the bondage of sin and the penalty of sin. But he's done it for his name. We are blessed to be the recipients. That should cause us more than ever to give glory to his name. This truth should affect everything about our personal lives and about our church worship. We were created for Yahweh. He saved us in Christ to make a name for himself. He's truly the only one worthy, worthy excuse me, of worship. Worthy of glory. He is God. And there is no one like him. May we never seek glory for ourselves. We are nothing. 
Apart from his grace, we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's who we are. Unworthy, unable to do anything about our sinful problem, but God acted. And God, in his grace and mercy, redeemed in the cross the elect. And he did so for his namesake. So may we never seek our own glory. May we never exalt ourselves, for he is the one that has redeemed us. May we never seek to make ourselves look good. To try to get people to think that we're spiritual or that we're important. May all our thoughts, all our words, all our deeds be to God's glory. And may our worship in this church be for God's glory. May we continually evaluate everything that we do, every ministry, every gathering, every outreach, that it be for the name that's above all names. Yahweh, the eternal, self-existing God, for he has revealed himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has redeemed us by his grace. Let's pray.